0: we find ourselves in the eye of the hurricane. The mass anti-racist protests taking place in the United States and in countries around the world following the death of George Floyd have been largely directed at policing as a root cause of systemic racism. But will defunding the police or making them more accountable really produce the outcomes we are looking for? Or do we need to look a little deeper? Law enforcement officers are, in essence, agents of the criminal justice system, a system that itself may be inherently racist. Research published by the National Registry of Exonerations in 2017, indicate blacks make up a disproportionate share of the wrongfully convicted for the crimes of murder, rape, and drug possession and sale. The report found that almost half of the 2,000 people exonerated for these crimes since 1989 are black. Blacks wrongfully convicted of murder spent an average of three more years in prison before being released than whites who were cleared of the same crime. Only about 15% of all murders committed by black people involve white victims, and yet 31% of blacks eventually cleared of murder convictions were initially convicted of killing white people. In half of all sexual assault exonerations where mistaken identity was a factor, the defendant was black and the victim was white. Innocent African Americans are 12 times more likely to be convicted of drug possession than are innocent white people. Law enforcement misconduct, such as hiding evidence, tampering with witnesses, perjury, or misrepresentation by law enforcement officers may also have contributed to this racial disparity. Our guest this week on For What It's Worth is Ken Klonsky, director of Innocence International, an organization founded by the late Reuben Hurricane Carter, middleweight world boxing champion contender who was incarcerated for 20 years for a crime he did not commit. Ken is the author of a number of books, including Eye of the Hurricane by Path Through Darkness to Freedom, which he co-authored with Carter and Freeing David McCallum, The Last Miracle of Reuben Hurricane Carter. He has also published a number of short stories, essays, and plays. Ken is a sought-after subject matter expert on the topic of wrongful convictions and the vagaries of the criminal justice system. He was featured prominently in the Netflix documentary series The Confession Tapes, which brought to light the questionable RCMP practice called Mr. Big, which is used to exact confessions from people to crimes they didn't commit. Ken has worked closely with Carter and Innocence International for the last 16 years, and during this time has seen and experienced firsthand the inequality and discriminatory practices that exist both within the American and Canadian judicial systems. Since Carter's death in 2014, Ken and Innocence International has continued to seek justice for the wrongfully convicted in both Canada and the United States. Hi Ken, Uh, thanks so much for agreeing to be a guest on the show today.
1: My pleasure Blake, it's nice to hear your voice.
0: Well you know I know when we we first discussed the, the possibility of you coming on as a guest it was um, at least in my mind, it was is to talk about the issue of, um, uh, I guess, the moral dilemma around releasing prisoners uh, into the general populace during um, the pandemic, um, you know, as a way to um, obviously curb the infection rates that were going on in the prison. And while I think this is a very important topic, um, of course, since between now and then, uh, the world has changed, something I think we're going to see over and over again. And um, now, now the topic seems to need to be broadened to include what's going on around the, in the United States and around the world, um, with respect to these protests um, and the call for the end to systemic racism. Uh, not an easy, not an easy task. Um, so I, I do want to broaden the discussion to include the current realities, but I do hope we can actually touch on this idea of, of the prison systems and and what's going on there. In light of this pandemic, so the way I'd like to begin is kind of a chat with you about your early years, a little bit of your background to give listeners an idea of who Ken Klonsky is. So you grew up in New York City during the racial riots in the 1960s. What was what was that like for you and your family, and and what were the general sentiments within your community about what was going on, and and ultimately how did this impact you and the way you thought?
1: Well, at the time the racial riots were taking place, uh, and that was the late 60s, I was already living in Toronto. So when I went back to New York to visit family, uh, some of them were uh, traumatized, a bit angry. The, uh, the most significant of the racial conflicts that took place, uh, and this is because my brother was a teacher was the um, New York Teachers' Union and the uh, black community who wanted the control over their own education. And that battle between the union and the uh, African-American community was the really first blow to the relationship between Jews and blacks that had been very solid until that point. So that was a a kind of formative experience to see communities acting like that and at the time I didn't have the depth of knowledge to understand this uh and uh, so so people were traumatized because they couldn't understand the attitude that um African Americans had against uh Well, the reason it was Jews is because uh, many, many Jewish people uh, teach in the public school system. And so there was this uh, kind of, okay, the white Jewish people are teaching young black children. And uh, you can imagine how difficult that circumstance would be when people want to control their own education. Uh, so that conflict was front and center. Uh, and through the early 60s, when I was um, at the University of Vermont, and then, of course, the really early 60s, uh, there was no end of uh, conflict that you would see on television between uh, blacks in the South, especially, and uh, authorities, uh, sheriffs and uh Uh, rednecks, uh, people who didn't want black people to be in um, uh, lunch counters and drink from the same fountain. I mean, it was the battle against segregation, which everybody in the North kind of got behind because it didn't really affect them directly. Uh, It was easy to vilify the South but because the violence and the hatred was so obvious, it was on the surface. But as far as the North was concerned, they were able to think that this was all at arm's length. They didn't see the racism in the system that they were part of. Uh, they were part of the problem, not the solution, as um, uh, Eldridge Cleaver said. So right. when a. That's that leads right back to that uh, New York teacher strike and the significance of it. It was suddenly the people in the North realized, hey, you know, uh, either we're imperfect or these black people, you know, there's something wrong with them. They don't like us. And maybe we've misjudged the South. You, you, you can see the, the whole of, of the upheaval sure. at that time.
0: And do you think it's any different now? I mean, I, when I read things in the papers now and I see the sort of knee-jerk tweets put out by certain individuals, largely white people, um, and of course then they end up getting fired from the positions uh, because of impro- inappropriate comments, but do you think it's kind of the same, that people just don't understand what's going on?
1: Well, they do get fired. Um, I would say that there's more consciousness around the inequities of race uh there is more consciousness as to whether this is going to translate into something positive uh by way of change i mean the police are just one aspect of it uh there is there's so much more the education system for example the the education system in new York the children in most of these schools, except for the magnet schools like Bronx High School of Science and so forth, are black, Uh, a very high percentage. We're talking over 90%. Uh, It's basically a segregated system. So how are these things going to change? How is housing going to change? So a lot of what goes on now, a lot of what's, what's taking place now it uh, doesn't really address the core issues. Whenever people are going to lose something or they're going to have to give up something, uh, that changes the dialogue. As long as they think, OK, you know, we'll deal with the police, the police are brutal and so on and so forth. That's one thing. But if it's if it affects them directly, their neighborhood or whatever it might be, then the resistance comes so is it better? yes, but is it much better no
0: yeah, that's the same feeling I have as well now when you moved from the United States to Toronto in nineteen sixty seven um, you know clearly the race riots were going on and 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 people in Canada were certainly aware of it Was there a difference did you was there a different feeling how, how, what was it like in Canada you know looking across and seeing what was going on in the United States
1: well it- I didn't intend to stay in Canada. Uh, I was actually going to do my graduate degree at University of Toronto, and you know, then I was going to go back. And then I I met my future wife. Uh, she was from Newark, New Jersey. And uh, you know there was an enormous riot down there. And after 1968, I mean, all the things that happened that year, the killing of Martin Luther King, the the two... Uh, the Democratic and Republican conventions, the um, uh, the killing of Robert Kennedy. Uh, it, it, 1968 was a, a watershed, and it just so happened that I had finished a year in Toronto, and we looked at each other and said, do we want to go back there? And we decided no. Uh, we have family and so forth, but um uh, that was the moment where we decided we were going to stay in Canada. I, I, my whole, um, whenever I spent time down there in, in the 60s, the late 60s, I felt like I couldn't take it, that my nervous system couldn't take being there. There was this intensity and this anger that I just did not want to be around
0: so it would it be safe to assume that you didn't feel that same sort of intensity, uh, anger, um, racial um, I don't know, pressure, if you want to if you call it that, it, in Canada, as, as you did in the United States?
1: Not at the least. Um, it, Canada was an extraordinary society in 1967 uh, and somewhat thereafter, too. Uh, it, first of all, there were no street people. As far as I could see, everyone was housed. Now, there weren't a lot of street people uh, in New York either at that time, but way more. Uh, that I just never saw street people in, in Toronto. And they also, there was a medical system. Uh, we take that for granted sometimes in Canada, but there was no such thing. You had to have a lot of money to, even back then, in order to be treated. And the And the schooling, the education system, it cost me uh, the first, uh, I think that I had to pay in graduate school, uh, the first year was $500, and then the years thereafter were $50 to renew being in graduate school. That meant that education was enormously subsidized. And still is, if people are really aware that, I mean, it's expensive to go to school and you have to get a loan, but the the costs in Canada are nothing, nothing approaching the United States. So Canada is a more equitable society because money is not as great a bar as it is in the U.S., Uh, Unless you get scholarships in the U.S., uh, most many of these schools are absolutely unaffordable. Or if you take out loans that you'll never be able to pay back.
0: Yeah, that is a real problem. And so, often, you know, when I look at what's going on in the world now, and and you know, the you know, there is systemic racism in the United States, and I would I would suggest there's systemic racism here in Canada as well. However. The socioeconomic disparity in the United States far exceeds that of almost any country in the world. I was looking at a report recently that stated that almost 69% of the assets in the United States belong to 1% of the population. That's a staggering number. The next closest country to the United States was, surprisingly, the Netherlands, at half of that. So approximately 35, 34%. So that economic, social economic disparity, I often wonder if that really is at the root of the problem. Um, Racism is a problem and there's, they're so intertwined, I'm not sure you can disentangle them. But part of me has been thinking throughout this whole last few weeks that the social economic disparities is really what's creating the great inequality in the United States.
1: Yeah. Neoliberal capitalism, as they call it. Uh, it's certainly, um, got much worse when Reagan became president. And it's interesting that, um, a lot of that, again, the, the key moment was a union battle against, uh, the, the establishment, the, the, the battle of the air traffic controllers union. When, um, Reagan says, uh, You either come back to work or be fired. And they had a union and they decided they were on strike and they weren't coming back. And he fired them. And, oh, everybody thought you're never going to be able to run the airport without this union. Well, they brought in the army and they did run the airport. But what happened was that was the the beginning of labor unions losing their power. Mm -hmm. And unless you have strong labor unions... Uh, you're not going to have anything uh, close to equitable. Uh, And so Canada's labor unions have really taken a a hit too, as we all know from globalization and so many things. But the United States is in absolutely the worst position if you're a worker. And so that means that um, taxes are... Uh, the the rich are able to avoid a lot of taxation. Um, They can put things in tax havens. Uh, They don't have a countervailing force. Big capital in the United States, uh, corporatism, uh, there's nothing competing with it. And when the system supports it, the political system, and by the way, the police uh, when the system props up that that um the the moneyed interests, then you're not gonna have justice and I think uh the death of labor unions or the the let's say the the weakness now of labor unions uh takes away the countervailing force. you don't have to pay people adequately, you don't have to give them sick leave. Uh, uh, I mean, unions are the ones who got those advances, and uh, you can see that uh, ever since Reagan, the union movement has gone further and further down.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I'd never really thought about the lack of countervailing force um, against private capitalism. Um, and you're right; uh, certainly, the unions were the uh, were the balance point, and with them weakening, of course, we see a you know rampant. Um, capitalist uh, takeover and ownership of, as I said, the assets of the United States. Um, you know, so I I, I I, can't help think when, you know, all the calls are to end systemic racism and, and to defund the police, um, you know, that that's a symptom of a much larger issue. But anyway, I'd like to sort of go back a bit to you and, and your background, and, and I was... You know, as I was planning for this podcast, I was thinking about the first time I met you, and I think it was around 1992 or 93 uh, when you came to teach at, at Vaughan Road Collegiate in Toronto, which was a predominantly black school at that time. Uh, very interesting. It didn't draw on the catchment area and where, where the school actually existed, but from areas outside of that. Um, and I remember my first impression of you, Ken, and, and, um, and I, was, I, I was drawn to your ring. Your cat's eye ring, and I thought, boy, there's an interesting guy. There's not many people I know that would wear a piece of jewelry that large, <laughs> and, and it actually, you know, in a some strange way, uh, symbolized to me a, a, an element of nonconformity and rebelliousness, which I really was drawn to, and um, and then, you know, I, I but I remember thinking at the time that you you seemed, I don't know maybe angry is not the word, but very frustrated with your current position, not in teaching, but within the world. Um, And, you know, dissatisfaction with some of the systems that you found yourself um, being governed by. And I quickly realized that you were a a person that wears their heart on their sleeve. You, uh, You never had a problem freely expressing how you were feeling at that given moment in time. And I remember thinking, boy, you know, Ken is sort of like Henny Penny, or I guess in, in the American, in America, it's Chicken Little, but you know, the, the sky is falling. But I realized that it was just, you know, the depth of feeling that you had on, on everything that related to human existence and human interaction. And I remember at this time, around this time, you came to talk to me and asked me if you could help out with the play, the the play that I was trying to produce at the school, Sam Shepard's Curse of the Starving Class. Tell me a little bit about your state of mind at that time and and why getting involved with the play was so important to you.
1: Well, at that time,
0: uh, I didn't really feel
1: comfortable in the education System. Uh, I didn't know, uh, exactly what I wanted to do, uh, to make life better for me in the education system, but I didn't feel connected to the institution. And when I saw that you were, um, preparing for, uh, a play, I remembered that, um, I had done some drama work before, uh, but it had been years and years ago. Uh, I had, uh, really spent the last, uh, the, the previous 15 years working in, uh, uh, behavioral, uh, working as a behavioral counselor and also as a behavioral teacher previous to that. And, and so when you're teaching, uh, kids who are in bad emotional shape, they're outside the system, uh, essentially, even if they're in the same building, They're kind of kids who don't um, connect to the rest of the people in the building. And the teacher who deals with them is also disconnected in some ways because these kids cause no end of trouble to uh, the average teacher. And they associate you with those kids. So I was a little um, alienated. And then when I saw your um, group working on this play, and I have to think it was, I guess, 93 or four even, uh, I thought, well, maybe I'll get involved here if um, Blake uh, will allow me. And so I requested it. In fact, uh, you saved my teaching career because I don't know how, long, how much longer I would have gone on in that state. And you really, as far as I'm concerned, you made the next uh, nine years or so uh, great joy for me. Uh, I know you left in 97 or 98, but I continued on with that. It was uh, absolutely vital. Uh, and uh, and you'd spend uh, most of the year, I guess it started even in mid-fall, uh, right through April, sometimes working on one play that went to the Sears Drama Festival. So, yeah, that was an extremely important thing, getting connected to that.
0: Yeah, it was for me as well. It, it was um, a transformative experience. People often ask me, well, what's the most significant accomplishment in your life? And I and I talk about that period um, because I, the, the transformation I saw in those young kids was truly extraordinary. And I remember when I first proposed um, doing a play at the school and, the, and there'd been no drama at Vaughn Road for 10 years up to that point. And the reaction of everybody in the staff except you, uh, was you'll never get these kids to do it. They don't have, they don't have the intelligence. They don't have the ability. They'll disappoint you. They'll let you down. Um, you'll never be able to accomplish it and of course those are things that usually get me to want to do it more Um, but we found the exact opposite and it was truly a transformative experience both for the students and I think for you and I and has led to you know continued collaboration in the the areas of producing plays for the the last number of years Uh, we've done I think seven in total together so it is a transformative experience (laughs) Even one at the uh,
1: Vancouver Fringe. Um, I I do think, though, that that um, experience, the first time we did the Sam Shepard, I tell an anecdote about that thinking, well, first of all, the process was extremely difficult because those kids were not exactly committed. Um, And I thought, oh, this is going to be quite the disaster uh and even uh with the rehearsals i kept thinking disaster i don't know how these right you say i'm chicken little right and so i i thought i don't know how these guys are going to get it together and then the night of the play uh it was almost a professional performance i was astounded how they did get it together uh that was a revelation to me if you think negatively uh sometimes uh you'll uh, cause something to come out badly if you actually share those thoughts. I didn't share those thoughts with those kids, but when I saw what they did, I realized you don't give up hope on anybody. There, especially young people.
0: Well, I think you know, even the same thing occurred. You know, when I was reading Eye of the Hurricane, you know, this whole notion of um, I don't know how to describe it. As Reuben Hurricane Carter, um, I think, was very much drawn to the existentialist and existential thinking and understood it, uh, given his predicament in prison and and the number of years he spent in solitary. And I found that to be the same with those students. In other words, the piece itself, Sam Shepard being an existentialist, you know, raised ideas about the world and questioned the American dream and society, societal norms. And I think all those kids could really relate to it in the context of their own lives. And I think that's why it worked. I'm not sure if we had chosen, you know, a different type of work that it would have been as successful, uh, but who knows. Um, but, you know, the around this time too, I noticed that you, you started writing again. Um, and what, why, what was the motivation there to start writing? Was it, as you say, just, you know, you were kind of feeling at odds with the education system and teaching, or was it something more?
1: I had never stopped writing. I was writing for uh, magazines. Um, I wrote a book of short stories. I actually took time off from teaching uh, to do that. In fact, I came to Vaughn Road after I had taken uh, six months to work on a project, so there was never a time I stopped, but when you're teaching, it's very hard to accomplish things um, in, in uh, short amounts of time. Uh, so most of the work I did during those years was uh, uh, kind of uh, sociological articles uh left wing articles about uh systems especially school systems um so uh i i never stopped writing i th- i think i'm a writer but uh uh it wasn't until i left teaching at the age of 57 that i really could be more of a full-time writer
0: well, I, I wanted to jump to to Ruben, and then in 2003, you did an interview with Ruben Carter for the Sun magazine called Going the Distance, uh, Ruben Carter's long journey from convict to crusader. Um, what prompted you, first of all, to reach out to Carter um, and then to do that interview?
1: Ruben had come to uh, Vaughan Road, uh, I think it was the first year I was there, or maybe the second uh, and he was there with, um, Lesra Martin and I'm, I'm trying to remember actually, no, it wasn't that early. It was, it was later on. I think it was around, um, 2000 because the hurricane had come out, the film had come out and he came in with Lesra Martin and they did a, uh, a session and I was wowed by the first of all, the story of his life and also the power of the presentation. Uh, I've never, well, I have, I've never known anybody with more kind of charismatic skills, shall we say, or a, more charisma. And uh, then that film, uh, I started taking students to see the film. And one group of them, well, I told them that Reuben lived in Toronto and they said they wanted to see him. They wanted him to come to the class. And I'm thinking, great. He, he gets five figures for a, a speaking engagements. So, but anyway, I thought, well, let's write him some letters and see. It was a good exercise for these kids who, by the way, did hardly any reading at all. And uh, they, they wrote these letters, and I sent them to Ruben. And I don't think three days went by. And he called me at home, and he said, uh, "Yeah, I'll I'd, I'd be willing to come to your class." And I, you know, I told him I couldn't pay him really. And he says, "No, don't worry about that." And he came, and uh, he gave a lecture to these kids, uh, none of which they understood. Neither did I. But um, the fact that he was there, his presence validated them. And made them feel kind of special. And most of them graduated, uh, which was uh, unheard of. Uh, so his, his just being there was a huge motivating factor. They they bonded as a class. Now, um, when um, Ruben, uh, I, I think it maybe a year later, I contacted him and I said, uh, I'd like to do an interview with you uh, for the Sun magazine. And he said, well, what's that all about? And I, so I dropped off a bunch of Suns at his house. And uh, I actually, uh, there was an intermediary who got me in contact with him over this, but that doesn't really matter. Uh, and so he had all of these Sun magazines. And then at some point he called and says, well, come on over. And so I came over and he's sitting up in his uh, den there that he had. And this was the house he had on Delaware Avenue. And he, he looks at me and he says, what is this all about? In a very kind of angry voice. And I knew at that moment that I had to have, I had to say something. You know how um, seconds split into millions of a second when you're in uh, a kind of duress situation. Uh, and, and so I knew I had to say something right there or he was going to boot me out of the house. And so I said, um, I said, posterity. I said, people are going to want to know what you thought and not just the fact that you were a boxer. That was it. That's all I needed to say, because one thing that Reuben really craved was recognition for his intellectual achievements and his uh, kind of spirituality, rather than this figure that people identified with this boxer, uh, or even this wrongly convicted person. So uh, that began, he he agreed to do the interview, I don't think he ever read any of the magazines. And the people at The Sun were really excited by it. And they did a great job editing it. I look back at it, and I still see that it's um, a remarkable piece. And he phoned me uh, when it came out. And Invited me over again. And uh, when I walked up to that den, he picked up that magazine. He says, he says, I love it. I love it. And so I thought those ideas in there could really be expanded. And it didn't take me long to propose doing a book. And he agreed to that. And we had no trouble finding people who would be interested in doing it. But Ruben is a very difficult person. So there were many uh, um, (laughs) pratfalls on the way to actually getting this book out. The book didn't come out until 2011, and we'd started working on it around 2004.
0: Wow. Yeah, and that that leads me kind of into my next uh, question was, um, you know, this marked that article with the Sun, marked the beginning of a very long relationship with Ruben. Um, and, uh, and the cause of addressing wrongful convictions. What did Carter say to you that fundamentally affected you to the point that his cause and convictions became your own? That is
1: a very, very good question. What was it in particular? I think um, it was about change. Uh, He said you can't change your mother. You can't change your father. You can't change your wife I mean as a person you can't change the country. You can't change anything but yourself and when you change the world around you changes and I thought about that a long time and I thought you know, he's absolutely right it's not the change that you even in society Society doesn't change. You change. And things happen around you because you've changed. Uh, I went into teaching um, behavioral students all back when in uh, 77, I guess, uh, even slightly earlier. And uh, I, they, these kids were causing no end of grief. I didn't know how long I was going to last. All kinds of stuff was happening. And uh, it was highly stressful. And I spoke to somebody who ran the school. It was called Youthdale School. And he would talk to me about what I was doing in there. And I felt uh, really angry because I thought, well, you're not getting to the point. These kids are crazy and so on and so forth. But what he made me understand back then was that if I approach things differently than so with the kids, uh, that you can't be the opposition. You have to be in their corner working with them. You have to be going forward, not against them, forward with them. And at that time, it, it very much changed my approach as a teacher, and it also worked with those very difficult students. So uh, it actually works with every student. You you don't become the problem, you become part of the of their solution. Uh, and so when Ruben said that much later on, I connected those two ideas and I realized, yeah, that's it. I changed, and as a result, those kids changed, because they sure weren't going to change unless I did. That's the idea that I found most profound
0: yeah it's a very powerful statement it, i I don't know whether Reuben said this or not it be be the change that you want to see it happen i i I've heard the quote before and it might in fact have been Reuben that said it, but it um, was gandhi it was Gandhi there we go well um but I think that you know there's much truth in that and you know, that we can all take away from that wisdom when you and Reuben decided to collaborate on writing the Eye of the hurricane. Um, I understand your research involved traveling to prisons across North America, speak with inmates who you believe were wrongfully convicted. Can you tell me about the first time you visited a prison and what it was like and and how did it make you feel? And and again, what did you learn about yourself in relation to the wrongfully accused?
1: Well, that's a long and extraordinary experience, but um, it's a wonderful beginning to uh, the story of David McCallum and his uh, eventual release in 2014. So it was back in 2004, Ruben quit the um, um, Aidwick, which was the Association in Defense of the Wrongly Convicted, which is now Innocence Canada. And he had nothing. He, had, he didn't have money. Uh, he didn't really have any place to go. So uh, he was like uh, Don Quixote and uh, I became Sancho Panza. Uh, it was all idealism. We didn't have any credentials, per se, although he was he was brilliant uh, when it came to legal matters. And that year, he got um, two honorary PhDs, one from um, uh, Griffiths University in Brisbane and another one at York University. And he felt very proud of that, and he was able to call himself well, they weren't PhDs, they were LLDs. So he was able to call himself Dr. Reuben Hurricane Carter, and then he would put LLD after. And I said, well, you don't need both. He says, I want both. <laughs> that was certainly Reuben. But so, so he was excited. He started his own organization. He thought he was going to get um, help from Griffiths, and then he thought he was going to get help from York, but he got nothing in terms of financial assistance. In fact, it was my father's death that made the, the uh, uh, th- it made it possible for us to do these various things. Uh, David McCallum, uh, who was a prisoner at Eastern Correctional in New York, came across the interview and the Sun magazine. He borrowed the magazine from a friend of his. And he read this interview, and he read it over and over, and he decided he had to get in touch with Ruben. He was a letter writer. He wrote over 600 letters, and he'd never been able to get anybody to really help him. So he writes to me, and I'm totally naive. Remember, I'm Sancho Panza. I, ju- I just don't know <laughs> anything. And so he, um, I see this letter, and it, it just strikes me as this guy is very articulate and what do we know? What I know is writing. And as an English teacher, I know when something is genuine, I think. I think I'm able to pick that out. So I felt like this was a genuine letter. And I wrote David back and I said, well, I'll try and get uh, Ruben interested in this case, because he's just started his own organization. And uh, so Ruben said, Oh yeah, we'll we're gonna help this guy and I got back to David and I said, Well, it looks like you're gonna get help. And then the next time I spoke to Ruby, he says, Well, I'm not sure. We got to go visit the brother. Because if he's gonna come out and make some kind of uh fool out of himself, he's gonna make a fool out of me. So I have to know that I'm representing somebody worthwhile. So Ruben uh and I and uh Alonzo Starling who was um Ruben's chief of staff, as he called him, uh, went down and uh, we visited David and we had a very long interview. And I I think uh, Ruben fell in love with David and vice versa. The two of them just uh, stared at each other for long periods of time. I'd never seen anything like it. But that was really the beginning of uh, 10 years of work to get David out of prison.
0: Yeah it was a it was a monumental uh, <laughs> feat to have done that. I you know thinking about you doing that and again there was a period of time where you and I didn't see each other that much. But I do remember um, going out for dinner with you and Ruben on the Danforth in Toronto at uh, Sher- Sherry Punjab. And it was during that time when, when Ruben was looking for money uh, to fund his new uh, Innocence Project. And we were sort of noodling around, brainstorming some ideas and how he might be able to raise some funds. So I do remember that period of time. You know, and, and here's a funny thing. And rereading Eye of the Hurricane, um, I find the it's much more impactful to me right now than it was when I first read it and, and obviously that's um, given everything that's going on in the world and I, I pulled out a few um, quotes from the book um, and if you'll indulge me I'd like, you, I'd like to read them to you and, and sort of get your take on that um, in the context again of what's going on um, in the United States and around the world and um, things that I found particularly profound And this was um, around Rubin talking about the notions of stereotypes and identification. And so he says, When you take on an image, you willingly become a stereotype. People have stereotyped me, and I have stereotyped myself. I lost myself in the process. Now I have stopped identifying myself as a black person. It doesn't mean that I'm ignorant of my history or what I look like, but I am a human being first. I know the color of my skin, But in the end, I am not a word. That struck me as, again, particularly germane and powerful in the context of the current situation. But it also amazed me, um, given everything that Ruben went through, um, the years he spent in, in solitary confinement, if there was anybody um that would would be justifiably uh, angry and filled with resentment and hate uh, particularly towards the justice system and by virtue of that the you know the white police and the and uh, white society but he was not he seemed to manage to transcend that um to become something more
1: yes uh well his Journey in prison, uh, as he says, my journey from, or my path from darkness to freedom, that was what it was about. He went in there as an angry uh, prize fighter uh, and somebody who deliberately stoked the anger of authorities. Uh, he, was, he was always a kind of bad actor uh, for the first uh, 30 years of his life. But at some point in the prison, he looked at himself. He had been in solitary confinement by uh, his estimation. And it was, um, by the way, confirmed to me by prison guard. He had actually spent almost 10 years in solitary confinement in the time that he was a prisoner because he refused to do any of the work of the prison. And he wouldn't even wear the clothing. And, you know, he, he was totally defiant. But at some point, he looked in the mirror, and he realized he was turning into a monster. He was, he was so angry. So he decided to get rid of his law books, which, I mean, he'd been trying to get out using all these legal means, and he just stuffed the law books somewhere and uh, started reading metaphysical philosophy, Gurdjieff and Krishnamurti and Thomas Merton and on and on. I mean, all the great thinkers. And that is where um, he decided that he was going to, what did he say? I'm going to make this prison cell into an unnatural laboratory of the human spirit. (laughs) And he, he did transcend the situation, which was brutal. Uh, He was in a very, very brutal place. And he, (laughs) he had to be afraid for his life every single day. Uh, But he also found that that uh, there was a world out there that he had never touched before. He'd never understood it. And it was also the world that he could find inside himself, uh, that uh, there there were people who could understand that world, and those were the people he wanted to connect with. And he did not want to connect or have anything to do with people who were... Uh, what he would call asleep and mechanical. Yeah, I
0: love that now, expression.
1: Another very powerful idea for me was that um, if you are mechanical, then you, you are part of the human physics, which is uh, to every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. What is it to be a reactionary, but to act in a way that is predictable, machine-like, to a provocation. Uh, for Rubin, he, under, he began to understand this, that um, that you had to take yourself out of that picture. Uh, you, you couldn't give in to that kind of provocation. Uh, uh, so he basically was able to change. There aren't very many people who can make the kind of change that he did. I actually think his story is one of the great stories of the 20th century. I don't think I'm exaggerating uh, that a guy who was as low down as he was in the bottom of the prison system to be coming out and standing there with presidents of all these countries and Nelson Mandela. And I mean, that's a great, inspiring story that I will never get sick of thinking about or hearing
0: well i agree with you 100 percent. that whole notion and interestingly enough you know the whole notion of being asleep and walking through life and accepting um identifiers and and becoming the identifier it's really and, and now of course we have the woke movement which is really all about people waking up to the reality of our current world and the climate crisis and the political crisis and and the larger existential crisis of, of what it means to be part of this world and and he seemed to get it early on and I I really you know his his talk the things he talks about around the state of identification and labels and how we try to become part of the label and by in by doing that we actually lose ourselves and I love the you know particular part in the book where he talks about you know, if people ask you what you do for a living, and or you know what what you what you what you do for a living, the the emphasis should really be on what you do. You know, you're not a lawyer, you're not a doctor, an accountant, a teacher. You know, those are those are just words. Those are just labels. What do you actually do? And I think we all fall victim to that. Um, and I think this is kind of at the crux of at least what I've been struggling with during these protests is recognizing that I may be partly asleep. Um, and, and you know, this has happened over over periods of time where you sort of accept, accept things as this is the way they are rather than thinking about how they might be. And the COVID pandemic has done a really interesting thing. It's almost you know, stalled time. Um, So I think about it as almost a gift of time where we have the ability almost globally at one time to sit back and re-examine our world and our part in that world. And more than that, to actually think about whether, number one, we're happy on the road we're traveling or whether we want to pick a new route. Um, So again, when I read uh, The Hurricane, uh, you know, Carter's words, um, are really, really strong in this regard.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of time spent interviewing him, and uh, they became, um, well, there were there were over 40 hours of tape, and uh, this was for both the son and the, the book. And I, I don't know how this actually happened, but um, the BBC got hold of these tapes. They were tapes of Ruben and me, And they asked if they could use it uh, in a a program uh, which I thought was going to be about Ruben and his thoughts and his life. But it turned out that uh, all of this wisdom and everything, they weren't that interested in. All they were interested in was the the New Jersey murders. And I was very upset by that. This came out a couple of years ago. And... uh, (laughs) At the same time, um, there was some benefit to it because it did bring Ruben back into the public eye and his work. But um, very little—it was—it was mostly sensationalism.
0: So, uh, you know, on on you know Ruben's philosophy, his transcendence, um, you know, his reading of philosophy—is was this some of the motivation for you behind uh, writing a life without?
1: Uh, no, it wasn't based on philosophy whatsoever. That was um, based on uh, experience with uh, wrongful convictions and the amount of research I was doing. Uh, the the book was essentially uh, uh, a first-person account of somebody who was wrongly convicted, a New York cab driver. And I still feel that there's, a good deal of humor in it. Uh, but it, it is not a book about philosophy. It's more mm-hmm. of a book about um, the circumstances of how an average person can wind up being wrongly convicted uh, if they don't understand the law, which most people don't, and they don't understand that the police are allowed to lie to you, that that they are completely able to say whatever they want to say to get you to confess to a crime. And so I thought that's a completely absurdist, absurd situation. And I wanted to write a play, but the, the, the Quattro Books was doing novellas. And I thought, all right, I'll turn this into a novella because there was a Ken Klonsky novella contest. And I had never written a novella. So I felt like, okay, I'll do that. And subsequently I've written a play, but I never was able to get uh that play produced. It did win it or it did got, uh, get a uh, mention for a BC Drama Prize, but um so life without uh was based more on um uh McCallum, Burns and Raffay, the absurdity of the system that I was looking at and the uh, the amount of research I
0: was doing. So you know, all of this, and, and of course, you know, you work with Ruben. you're writing. Um, and, and then, you know, Hurricane Carter's dying wish was um, for the New York State Justice officials to take another look at David McCallum's case, uh, you know, wrongful conviction. And um, you were able to fulfill Carter's dying wish. How did that make you feel?
1: Well, the day David got out was the second most powerful, wonderful experience I've ever had. The first one was Ray, my son's birth. Uh, and what it, <laughs> A lot of people who come out of uh, prison who are exonerated, there's an expression, the rebirthers. And so they get themselves a new birth date. Reuben was November 8th uh David McCallum October 15th uh so i've seen a number of people who thought well their lives meant nothing until the day they walked out of that prison that may or may not be true but uh, uh so david uh was was released and that was the end of uh, a, an enormously long process ruben um he was on his deathbed when we wrote that letter, and he um he died uh, right before uh, Ray My Son's film," came out uh, on David McCallum at the Hot Dogs Festival. and the whole then um, uh, Ken Thompson, who had been elected uh d. a got involved in the case and it was just an inevitability these things happening and that letter that ruben wrote i think was that was the most significant thing that happened in 2014 it pushed us over the brink you know we we finally reached the point where we were um, more powerful than uh, the system we had we had gotten to that moment uh, it was ruben's death wish essentially that David be released, and he wrote it directly to Ken Thompson, the new DA, who was very responsive. He he got into office promising to write the wrongful convictions in Brooklyn, which are legion. Uh, It's a a terrible crime what happened in that uh, jurisdiction for, oh, 15, 20 years. Uh, There was a cop named Louis Garcella who was responsible for many of these uh, wrongful convictions. He had a whole technique. Uh, So uh, that was uh, an extraordinary moment because there were so many things against us, so many forces waged against us. Even parole became impossible because David wouldn't admit that he'd done a crime that he didn't do. So uh, thank God they didn't give him parole because then he would never have had a nice settlement and uh, life would not have been the same. So yeah, uh, it took 10 years, but in the end, we all felt it was worth it.
0: Well, it was a remarkable story. And as you you say, as you point out, that things just seem to all come together at that perfect moment in time. And yeah, I hadn't realized, of course I've read the story about David and, and I know the story about Ray, but I hadn't realized that Ken Thompson had died so, soon thereafter. So there was really a, a small window um, for that conviction to be overturned. Extremely small.
1: and the, But there are so many coincidences in dates, too, in this case, uh, because Ken Thompson died in October of 2016, and David McCallum was uh, invited to speak at the funeral, which he did, uh, and it was on the very date that David had been released from prison, October 15th. So uh, I don't think Ken arranged his death. No. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there were a lot of things. Reuben's death was on Easter Sunday. Uh, you know, these are little things that might not mean anything individually. But when you put them all together, uh, David went into prison in 1985. That's when he was arrested. Ruben got out of prison in 1985, and Ray was born in 1985. Got to consider these things um, in some light that I don't truly understand, but I'll say that that's it. I don't understand it, but it just seemed like more than coincidence to me, the whole case.
0: Yeah, it's, it's quite a remarkable story. I'd like to move our conversation now to the present, Starting with the discussion about Myoshi, uh, an RCMP interrogation, the play you kindly asked me to direct for the Vancouver Fringe Festival. This was really my first opportunity to understand what you do um, and to understand this whole notion of, of wrongful convictions and of course become aware of how often this actually happens. It was also my first experience or introduction to the Mr. Big Sting tactic being used by the RCMP, designed to exact confessions from people to crimes that they hadn't committed. To provide our listeners with a little context, um, Ken and Innocence International have been involved in a project to overturn a conviction, a murder conviction, um, for a crime that was committed in the early 90s in Washington State, Uh, where two young uh, boys, Sebastian Burns and Atif Raffae, were accused and later convicted of of murdering Atif's parents uh, in their home in Washington. Their conviction was largely based on evidence provided by the RCMP. I remember when I first saw the transcripts you provided me with, and for our listeners, these transcripts were new evidence they were never um, available during the trial of Atif Rafe and Sebastian Burns. No one had actually seen these transcripts or read the, interview, the RCMP interview with Jimmy Myoshi. Jimmy Myoshi was one of Burns and Rafe's best friends, and their conviction was largely based on his testimony in court. And I also remember how appalled I was after I'd read those transcripts. Firstly, that the RCMP could get away with using a tactic like Mr. Big. And just for audience sake, again, Mr. Big Tactic has the RCMP pretending to be criminals, to be underworld figures, um, who are engaged in criminal activity throughout the sting operation. And throughout the interrogation of Jimmy Miyoshi, they were clearly manufacturing facts that suited the case that they wanted to provide. And Jimmy clearly did not agree with the story that the RCMP wanted him to agree to. But I remember before I had a chance to review the actual transcripts of the interrogation of Jimmy Mayoshi by the RCMP, you directed me to watch the Confession Tapes, a documentary on Netflix about the murder trial and the subsequent um, um, imprisonment of uh, T. and Sebastian Burns. And my first impression was, why on earth would anybody confess to committing a crime, especially the crime of murder, if they didn't do it? I later came to realize that the RCMP technique, the Mr. Big Sting technique that they used, was so effective, not just in this particular case, but in in previous cases and subsequent cases. It is done so well and so effectively that people end up confessing to these crimes even though they know they didn't do it, simply to end that whole interrogation process. Well, it's one thing to read the transcripts, and it's quite another to actually create um, a story from those transcripts, a sense of meaning uh, for an audience. Because, of course, just reading the transcripts, they were so absurd, and they were so nonsensical at, at, at a very basic level, because, of course, the RCMP just kept asking the same questions over and over again because they weren't getting the answers that they were looking for uh, to support the case they wanted to prove. And so it was it was through that process of creating the story out of it that I began to understand um, this notion of wrongful convictions and how easily they happen. Secondly... What was clear to me throughout the process was, number one, how corrupt the RCMP was. Number two, how dysfunctional the criminal justice system was both in the United States and Canada. Because, of course, these boys were being tried for the crime in the United States, but they were using evidence from a sting operation conducted in Canada by the RCMP. A sting operation, which, by the way, is illegal in the United States there was almost this mass level of collusion amongst the RCMP, the police in Washington, and the criminal justice system, the court system, because there was no physical evidence to support the conviction of these two boys. And in fact, the physical evidence that was available, and the police knew about it, as did the RCMP, pointed to a different set of murderers. But they were so focused on pushing this case forward and convicting these two boys because they've already spent a lot of money and time and effort following a trail that we actually believe now was incorrect that they weren't prepared to even look at the evidence, the the substantial amount of evidence that was in front of them, which would basically have led to the release of Sebastian Burns and Atif Raffae. In a nutshell... It was the confession exacted by the RCMP with the help of the Mr. Big sting tactic which led to the conviction of these two boys. That, along with the testimony of Jimmy Miyoshi. You know, and this has got me thinking about the current situation around the world and this whole idea of defunding the police. Uh, And of course, in the context of of the RCMP and the Burns Raffae case, uh, and the Mr. Big um, sting approach, which you know was challenged in court, and my understanding is there has been some movement insofar as the the police can't just indiscriminately use that technique anymore unless there's some form of evidence to support the use of that mr big technique but it hasn't been abolished so part of me thinks that you know, okay, we can look at the police and we can try to change what they do and how they do it. We can defund them. We can reallocate funds. But until we address the inequalities and the discrimination in the entire criminal justice system, is it really going to drive the impact that we're looking for?
1: Well, I guess they're not an either-or uh, sure, there are inequities in Canadian society, and um, there are problems in the justice system, but the Canadian justice system, I would say, is um, 50% better than the U.S. system. No, I mean, of course, the Canadian justice system also manufactures wrongful convictions. We know very well there have been some many, many, many famous cases. Uh, it's almost as difficult to overturn a conviction in Canada as it is in the U.S., and maybe in some ways more difficult. Uh, but So so you've got systems that aren't flexible. You don't have, um, uh, unlike, say, Brooklyn, where they instituted a, a, a unit that strictly deals with wrongful convictions. You don't have that here, and it takes a huge amount of time and effort to get somebody out of prison. So yeah, there are problems, uh, systemic problems, as like they're talking about. There's problems uh, with the treatment of indigenous people, with black people. Uh, this is something uh, a lot of people weren't conscious of, although I don't see how you can't be conscious of the way they've treated indigenous people. It, it, it's a colonial occupying force, the RCMP. But the other issue is the RCMP. And as far as I'm concerned, they are uh, racist, sexist, corrupt, brutal organization. This is not to say that every RCMP, uh, uh, every RCMP um, police person is racist and brutal and all of that, but the culture is racist and sexist and brutal. I I don't know if people remember how bad it was for uh, women who had been sexually harassed in the RCMP to um have their complaints heard. In fact, they were drummed out of the force. Uh, they were abused. And uh, I think the system uh itself is not as bad as uh the the RCMP. The RCMP is a corrupt organization, and Mr. Big is a reflection of the the true nature of the RCMP. So what they do is they pretend to be gangsters, and they draw the the mark or the uh, suspect into criminal activity. And by getting them to do criminal activity with them, they create a situation where the suspect is dependent on them. And they make the suspect... Um, tell them things that they confess to crimes they haven't done in order to avoid more serious consequences. Well, what I'm um, uh, looking at, and I've been looking at this with the Burns and Raffae case now since 2007, what I see is an organization that feels very comfortable pretending to be gangsters, because in a way, that's what they do best. Uh, it's, as I say, at the culture of the organization is completely corrupt. And it doesn't surprise me that they have experts in um, pretending to be gangsters because they know all about gangsterism. They kill people right in front of you. They've killed people. Uh, Jagansky in the Vancouver airport. What happened as a result of that? There was nobody going to jail for murder, it was perjury. That was the charge that finally stuck. So um, they get away with things. There's a terrible system of uh, inspecting or or trying to uh, um, adjudicate or understand what happened in a particular situation. Uh, The RCMP investigates itself. uh, And then even if they have an outside investigation, they're not under no um they're on they're under no compunction, that they don't have to act on any of the recommendations. Uh they can hear recommendations, but they don't have to do anything. And these cases these cases can draw on for years and years um uh killing indigenous women, 2016, nothing's happened. Uh and how competent are they? Think about it, the missing and murdered. There's over a thousand indigenous women who were killed in this country uh, and uh, who they've gotten Robert Picton. One person has been um, uh, successfully prosecuted for what, a dozen of these, but there's so many more that they haven't found anybody. Uh, They're incompetent. There's so many cases. And so when they um, fastened on to Atif and Sebastian, that was the best thing they could do in terms of skill level. They could make these two guys confess to a crime they hadn't done. They were teenagers, and they were very susceptible to the kind of pressure that uh, these people put on them. So I have no regard, no respect for that organization. Uh, and that is not to say that I don't think there are decent human beings inside the organization. I, I've met some, but I don't have any regard for the system. It's that, so I think the RCMP should be disbanded. I don't think it's a successful police organization. I believe that the mayor of Surrey is right to want to get rid of them and put in their own uh, policing. Uh, and they, all they're about is publicity. So they send around people to tell you that they shouldn't get rid of the RCMP in Surrey. Uh, you, you might get handed a, a flyer if you're at a demonstration in Surrey saying, keep the RCMP. Well, I don't know why. <laughs> if if somebody could tell me what good the RCMP does, I'd like to know. I really would. I'd like to have my faith restored in some way. But I haven't had much faith in them since Sergeant Preston of the Yukon. <laughs>
0: Well, it, it's it's true, and it's certainly this is a sentiment. Um, you know, you wouldn't be the first to express it, and it's certainly what we're hearing about in the United States being directed at the, at the police force as well. And you know, you raise some points around you know the training of the RCMP or police in general. And I've heard, I've heard, and I haven't verified it. So I have, but I have heard really that you know the training to become a police officer um, is you know, it doesn't require much. It's very, very short. Uh, um, There is They don't have the expertise that we assume that they do. Um, So I don't know whether the answer is defunding them, um, changing how people are trained, um, requiring more education, requiring a background in criminal psychology. I'm not sure what the answer is, but there's something in the back of my mind that keeps saying... As you said early on, if we can direct everybody's anger at one group of people, the police, then it doesn't threaten the larger group of people who are actually controlling the police and are controlling the political agenda and so forth. So part of me wonders whether this is kind of a fool's a fool's game. Yes, we can exact some changes to policing. Yes, we may be able to defund or reallocate funds. Um, to other social services or incorporate social services into policing. But I'm not sure that that will provide an end to the systemic racism that we currently see. And and certainly in the introduction of this podcast, you know, racism um, exists within the criminal justice system. There is no doubt that wrongful conviction convictions um, are also subject to racism. I mean, the stats are almost overwhelming. Um, Blacks get convicted for uh, these types of crime, wrongfully convicted for crimes far more regulated than whites do. Uh, And yet, they represent a much smaller portion of the population, so we know it's there. um, And we know, you know, that that some of the tactics of the police forces are uh, racist and, you know, rooted in, in, you know, what do you call them, criminal activity, um, manufacturing evidence, threatening witnesses, and that kind of thing. But it seems to me there's more to it, um, and that it's easy to, you know, like what happened in the 1960s, where there were civil rights protests, and, and those protests were directed at the police and the military, too, because we had the Vietnam War, And things happened during that period of time, but they didn't fix the problem. They kind of pushed it underground a little bit and and made it and and, and hit it, Uh, but it's still there and, and still quite prevalent. So part of what we're trying to do in this podcast is try to drive some new solutions to old problems. Um, I don't think this is a new problem that we're experiencing that people are testing. It's an old problem that's never been properly addressed. And so I'm trying to figure out if you have any thoughts about how we can um, come up with a solution to this sort of systemic inequality, discrimination, uh, racism. What's the answer? I mean, we have have the time now, I think, um, to actually Decide what we really want the future to be. And I I think we're in a very unique, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do that. So if I were to ask you the question, what can we do to fix this problem, really? If we could do anything, what should we be doing?
1: Oh, well, the thing is, as I indicated, I I think it's not any one thing. Uh, And just to uh, briefly go back, I, I think one of the things that needs to be done with policing is that it it's not militarized they've got to take away the whole military notions of policing that that's one of the problems Uh, they have this military model and so people are uh, they have to report to their superior and uh, in effect what happens is communication uh, is filtered through one person and there's no accountability uh, uh, lower, lower down. Uh, often these people are protected. So, so what would cause more, uh, or what would I think would make a more equitable society? Uh, on, I think the notion of defunding the police, it's probably the wrong word. I think uh, you were right when you mentioned reallocate funds. Because the police are doing jobs that are not meant for some kind of militarized organization. There's a lot of sensitive work in the community that needs to be done. And they can't be done by, as you say, uh, poorly trained police. Uh, what What needs to be done is that there has to be funding and there has to be commitment to uh, education, and to social work in marginalized communities. People who've been damaged by the system, uh, some of them have uh, PTSD from the way they've, uh, the the children, from the way they've grown up in these horrific circumstances. Uh, You have uh, Native people, Indigenous people, who are growing up on reserves that don't even have uh, uh, good drinking water. Now, the liberal government has done some work in trying to right that, but it's still it's still there. The problem is still there. So look at all the money that suddenly became available in the U.S. and Canada during this COVID thing. Uh, trillions of dollars in the U.S. to help people out. Billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in Canada. And they've said all along, oh, there's not money to do this. There's not money. Well, there is money, obviously. Uh, The country can uh, even print money, you know, but you have to apply. You have to give the resources so that the um, social circumstances of people are changed appreciably enough so that they can live decent lives, so that they can work and have families and do the things that we know lead to stability. And there also has to be uh, some kind of um, you know, the whole notion of a war on drugs is crazy. The you know the idea of war, but the drug situation, the opioid situation, has to be addressed in some better way. I don't exactly know, but I, I sense that it's not a uh, uh, a cops and robbers kind of thing I think it's it 's um, something we have to deal with more systemically, which is why so many people feel the need to take drugs uh, once again you 're dealing with um, psychology, social work uh, this is not the police should have nothing to do with drugs, so in a way, the police are doing jobs uh, that enforce the inequalities. In society, uh, that's their job. Their job is to to keep the status quo, to protect um, your average middle class or upper class person from uh, people interfering with our lives, taking our money, whatever it might be. Uh, I'm very cynical about the way the system works, and I, I think that it doesn't by by putting so much focus on policing and uh, so much money into policing it's uh, making the problem worse
0: i agree with you i mean i think again it's diverting our attention from the root of the problem Um, and again when i was going through some of the research for this interview and looking specifically on on wrongful convictions and all the data that i was reading from the national registry of exonerations all i could think of when i was reading through it was boy people are really afraid. All of this is born out of fear, and I was trying to think, well, what is the fear? Um, Because clearly, um, based on their data, you know, black people are prejudiced against, um, you know, with respect to wrongful convictions and charges, and the same charges, and, and all I could think about when I was reading all the data was, boy, white people are afraid. Um and and they react out of out of fear and, and you know, perhaps policing, as you say, and can the continue in funding and, and investment in, and more policing and, and more control by by police forces, you know, it, is a reflection of that fear? I don't know. Um, but I do agree that you know, we people need to, you know, that many will say if you can satisfy people's need for food, clothing, housing, education and health then people can turn their attention to making the world a better place for everybody but with those basic necessities lacking um there is bound to be you know mass inequality and and this is a concern so when i watch what uh, the Canadian government did with respect to the Serb uh, versus what happened in the United States, and I, I've spoken to a few American friends of mine as well, and they've said, well, you know, yes, it was great to get $1,500, uh, a check with Donald Trump's signature on it, but that doesn't do anything for us. The majority of of the emergency funding went To bail out the corporations the same people that the government bailed out back in 2008 and 2009 when they caused the worst recession in history so this is part of the problem is you're right there's money but where is that money going (laughs) it's not going to the people that need it to improve the quality of life for everybody it's going to the major corporations
1: who serves who what there's a wonderful um song by Bob Dylan you got to serve somebody people should uh, listen to more frequently you know we're all serving somebody well who's serving who here uh the um the corporations essentially are at the end of the <laughs> of the table they're the ones who are getting the most uh it's true that you know, the united states and of course to some degree canada are corporate states so they're the ones who suck up the resources. And the people on the bottom, they're serving their employers or whatever. But the the thing is that nobody is outside the system. Everybody's a part of it. And uh, do you, what idea do you serve? Do you serve um, justice or do you serve, uh, do you serve a kind of injustice? Uh, is it okay with you that uh, people suffer, or do you have compassion? Uh, there are a lot of choices like that, but you're never fully outside the system. You can't avoid those choices.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. But I, you know, I think um, I think we're kind of at the end of of the episode. I want to thank you for um, your time, and and I think we did cover quite a bit. Um, who knows where we will go in the future Ken but I, I hope um, you know if you're if you're willing you'll come back and join us for another episode um, and further on these along these same lines of discussion but maybe something different because of course the world will change uh, in between now and then no doubt
1: Yes <laughs> we don't know why, how but it will uh, you're right I think that we are on some kind of uh, orient, some kind of moment where uh, things could uh, maybe change for the better or go totally off the rails certainly a, a, a tipping point here
0: my guest for the next episode of for what it's worth is dag spicer dag is the senior curator of the computer history museum in mountain view california the world's first and largest computer museum DAG regularly conducts media interviews, liaises with U.S. government national research laboratories and universities, deals with legal and commercial intellectual property issues, and organizes public computer history lectures. DAG is also a writer on topics related to computer history for various media and scholarly organizations. For our Canadian listeners, DAG is the son of Keith Spicer, well-known academic, political advisor journalist and writer past head of the CRTC and Canada's first language Commissioner join us for the digital dark age for what it's worth